enormous amounts of time and energy and effort to hone the skills and gifts that you've given them so that they can lead us to, to worship you and point us towards you. Lord, we just thank you for this time to look at your word and pray that you'll move powerfully in our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We give God all the glory, but why don't we encourage them for a great time of worship. Like I said in the first service, you watch uh, too much TV and you start to think that the world is, is over. There's no future hope. Uh, we know our hope is in Christ, but it sure does help to see these nine young people uh, living their life for Christ to say, hey man, there's a great future uh, in store. And I know that uh, Granger never puts, he doesn't put anyone up here lightly. Like He always gives them a lot of talks about if you're up here, you better be living it because I don't want to put someone up here that's not living it. So I'm proud of all you guys. Uh, well, we continue in our study of the book of Matthew, the sermons that Jesus gave that are spread throughout Matthew. There's five of them called the Five Discourses of Matthew. The first one is, is famous. It's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And so that uh, the main idea in the Sermon on the Mount was that you must have Christ's righteousness. You can't rely on your own religious or external behavior to make you righteous with God. And so he said, you must have a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, uh, or you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so we, the scribes and Pharisees of the day were the religious elites. They were the professionals at being religious. They knew the word of God. They taught the word of God, but they got it wrong because they thought that their outward behavior would make them right with God. And Jesus shows up on the scene and says, no, you can only be made right with God by trusting in Jesus and giving, he'll give you credit for his righteousness. And then your outward behavior changes uh, because you've been changed from the inside out. And then he said, now, in the second discourse, every one of you who claims to be my disciple, he says, I am sending you to go out and make disciples. You have been saved in order to be sent. And so anyone here today that claims to be a follower of Christ you need to know you're a missionary. You are on mission. In Matthew 28, the end of the book of Matthew, uh, the Great Commission is, as you are going, make disciples. And so the make disciples is the command. The qualifier is as you are going. And so as you go to school, as you go to work, as you go to your neighbors, as you do your hobbies, as you, as you do life, as you go to the grocery store, be about making disciples. So all of us are on mission. All of us need to understand that when he talks about being sent, he's not talking about just the Lewises or people who have quit their job and moved to another country or another city or state. He's talking about every single one of us. When we parent, when we do our jobs, when we go to school, everything we do, we are making disciples. And then he says, now, as you make disciples, you need to understand, expect to be persecuted. He's like, look at me. My whole life was one of proclaiming eternal life through faith in Christ, and I was persecuted. Why do you think that you're going to be treated any differently if you follow me? Think about it very literally. If you follow Jesus wherever he goes, you experience what Jesus experienced. You hear the, the insults and the mockery. You, hear the, the you experience the physical persecution. If you do what Jesus did, if you go where Jesus went, if you are following Jesus, then you should expect nothing less than being persecuted. He says, so expect it. And then he said, but don't fear it. Don't fear man. And we were challenged of all the things that we fear, people. We fear our reputation. We fear uh, that we will lose a friendship or a relationship. And we fear losing our security or, or being mocked or anything like that. And Jesus says, listen, all they can do is 
He separated the soul from the body. He said all they can do is, is this life and this body. He says that's the worst they can do. He says, but you shouldn't fear that. You should fear God. You should have faith in God who has power over not only this life but your eternal life, not only your physical body but your soul. He says, so let's get things in perspective. So not only should we expect it, but we should embrace it. We should embrace the persecution that follows. But why is there so much persecution? Today, we get Jesus kind of continue to explain as he wraps up this second discourse and he gets to the heart of where this persecution comes from. And it comes from the fact, the very essence of his mission. Now, there's many mission statements that we could say that Jesus has that kind of captures different angles of what the reason he came. But today, he focuses on one that's quite surprising. This, this is not what I would have thought if you said, if I asked you, what's Jesus' purpose in coming? Listen to what he says, verse 34. Do not think I have come to bring peace. What? I thought he was called the Prince of Peace. I thought he was all about bringing peace. And Jesus has his disciples at his feet. He says, don't think I've come to bring peace. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set man against a father and against mother and against kids. I have come to not bring peace. So we got to really understand, what is Jesus talking about? What does he mean that he did not come to bring peace, but to bring a sword and to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and so forth? Lord, would you help us to understand what you mean in these texts? These are very powerful teachings that, if we grasp, that could, could have transformative effects in our life. I pray, Lord, that we'll all see we have been sent. We are all on mission to expect persecution and to live faithfully for you in the midst of it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, today we're going to consider three things. Jesus' mission. Jesus' worth and Jesus' reward. Jesus' mission, his worth, and his reward. Let's start with his mission, which is what he talks about in verses 34 through 36. Look what he says. Do not think I have come. That's missional language. Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And so he's alluding to, uh, to, to the passage in Micah that we've talked about several times. It talks about this household turning against itself because of the Messiah. In verse 34, we see he is on a mission. I have come. God is on a mission. When we read the scriptures, we see that it's very similar to what we've been reading about humanity being soul and body, that we are souls that are enfleshed with a body, but when the body dies, those in Christ, the soul lives eternally. Well, Christ is God eternal. He has eternally existed, but he enfleshed himself and came to this earth. He took on flesh. He lived the perfect sinless life. He did that as fully God and fully man. He did what we could not do. He lived righteously. He displayed in his life the full righteousness that he is as God. And so then when he died on the cross, he was giving his life as the only acceptable sacrifice for sins. 
a eternal sacrifice, a, a, a sacrifice that was holy, that God, perfect and holy, could accept. And so he did this so that all could have their sins forgiven and be declared righteous. But just as we talked about our souls and body, Jesus' body was crucified, it was buried, but three days later we see that he eternally existed. That was not the end of him, that he resurrected from the grave with a bodily resurrection. And he said, now, you are going to go be my disciples, wait for me to send the Holy Spirit. And then he ascended into heaven. And so what we see is this is the mission of God, the mission of God. Jesus is the pioneer of our faith. Jesus is the one who has done all that we could not do. He went and paved the way for us to experience exactly what he did, that we too, if we are in Christ, though our bodies will die, we will have new life in Christ, we will resurrect, our souls will continue forever with Christ and there's coming a time when Christ returns and we will return with him and a new earth and he'll establish his kingdom we'll have new resurrected bodies much like Jesus had a resurrected body and we will live in peace under his reign and his rule and his kingdom forever and that's the mission of God that's the story of the Bible that's why Jesus came so what we see is the peaceful kingdom of God is future but in the meantime, in this body, in this life, there will be great division. So this tells us that the world is wrong. The world says that peace, the way to have utopia, the way to have the, the peace that we all long is through having no division. If we'll just eliminate distinctions of all sorts... They say, the problem with our world, the reason we live in this divided world is because of all these differences. If we'll just wash them all away, any kind of difference you can imagine, we would be at peace. And Jesus says the exact opposite. Jesus says the way to that kingdom of peace is through clear division. And that's what he says. I have come with a sword. The sword is a metaphor. He is not a violent messenger. He's not saying the physical sword and, and take up your arms and bring peace through arms like that. He is using sword as a metaphor. The scriptures makes it clear that he is the, the prince of peace. Isaiah 9-7. Zechariah 9-10 speaks about a day when the Messiah will speak peace to the nations. In Isaiah 11-6-9 he describes that final kingdom as a peaceful existence where the lion lays with the lamb and where there are no weapons of war. The Old Testament teaches us to look forward to the Messiah who will usher in that kingdom of peace. He is described as one who will not break a bruised reed. When he was mocked and persecuted and crucified, he did not open his mouth. So all the division that comes is not about personality, is not about arrogance, is not about being obnoxious. It's about being crystal clear with what Jesus stands for. And see, that's where the division comes from. Do not think I have come to bring peace to earth, but I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. He is saying that wherever I go, where you understand clearly who I am and what I stand for, there will be division. Because not everybody will embrace it. He's the line in the sand of history. Every person, all of humanity must choose which side they stand on. They either will embrace him or reject him. There is no middle ground. 
And he says, that's my mission. I didn't come to bring peace by eliminating. I didn't come to bring peace by saying all roads lead to heaven. I came to bring peace by saying, let's be crystal clear. Here is the way to eternal life. Here is the way to God. Here is the narrow gate. And his name is Jesus. It's by faith in Jesus alone. And so with the clarity of the gospel, with the clarity of his message, with the enfleshing revelation of God, which is what it is, he he reveals the way of God to humanity. And as it is revealed, the clearer it becomes, the more divisive it is. In Luke 12, 51, this exact phrase is, almost exact phrase is repeated, and we see it means division, the sword. He says, do you not think I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. And so when he says sword, he means division. Though he is the prince of peace, the world will so violently reject Jesus and his reign that men and women will divide over him. He brings division now in this body, in this life, because he is exclusive. His way is exclusive. He calls all to submit to him and his authority. He alone is the way to God. He alone is the way to experience the kingdom of heaven. He is the one to have victory over death. There is no other way. And with these exclusive claims come anger, hatred, persecution, and division. R.T. France says, these are not just some unfortunate side effects of a basically acceptable mission. It's the very purpose of Jesus' coming is not peace but a sword because the message of God's kingship is one which always has and always will lead to violent response from those who are threatened by it. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, you're not understanding me. This is what he's saying to his disciples. This is what he is saying to us. You're not hearing me, disciples. I'm not just saying to expect occasional persecution, but otherwise enjoy a life of peace and tranquility. He's saying, listen, the very reason I came was to make it crystal clear. And when it is crystal clear, there will be division. Anytime you have an organization, as the vision becomes clear, there is division. And it's not always bad. When we started this church, I read a church planning book that said, after one year, 50% of your church planning team will be gone. And I said, absolutely not. That is crazy. After one year, 50% of our church planning team was gone. And it wasn't ugly. It wasn't bad. It was just there was clarity. It took about a year to figure out who we are, what are we doing, who am I as a pastor, how's this going, what's our direction, what are we going to be, and with clarity comes, oh, okay, well, that's not what I thought this was all about. I'm going to go somewhere else. With clarity of the gospel comes division. The clearer you stand for Jesus, the clearer you are known as one who represents Christ, the more divisive effect you will have in the relationships around you. Not because you're being obnoxious, hopefully, but because you are clearly, uncompromisingly, exclusively pointing to Jesus. When everyone around you in this relativist society says there is only one allowable 
exclusive claim, and that is Christians are wrong for making the exclusive claim about Christ. I mean, that's the society we live in. You can say anything, believe anything, as long as it is not a crystal clear statement of truth about Jesus. That's where we live. That's where y'all are growing up in. And Jesus says, don't be surprised. This life is not one of occasional persecution and division. That if you are going to be my disciple on mission, proclaiming the name of Jesus, that the life of Christ is the only way to have eternal life, then you will have division. Not only that, but he says, that's the very reason I came, was to make it clear. And with clarity comes division. What does this mean for us? It means we can't compromise the message. We can't water it down. We can't be more understanding, more tolerant about that. None of this is talking about attitude. None of this is talking about personality. None of this is talking about being obnoxious. It's loving, compassionate, the Jesus who did not open his mouth as he was being abused, who would not break or hurt a bruised reed, the Jesus who was kind, compassionate, loving, understanding, and took it on himself without compromise. If that was his mission, to be so crystal clear that wherever he go, he brought division, it must be our mission if we are his disciples. Our life, our actions, our priorities, our use of resources, and most clearly our words must be uncompromisingly faithful to the scriptures. Jesus is the only way to heaven. That's his mission, but also let's consider Jesus' worth in verses 37 through 39. Whoever loves, loves is language of worth, of value, of treasure, of what you love. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross, in other words, whoever loves his own life is not worthy of me if he loves his own life more than me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In these verses, you see three loves mentioned. Jesus goes right to the heart of the matter. In the context of being on mission, representing Christ in your culture, in your circles of influence, you're going to expect persecution. It's going to happen. If you stand for Christ, you're going to see division. Now, do you love your mom and dad more than you love me? You know, this is hard to interpret if you just can't accept the simple truth on the Scripture. The simple, plain truth is, do you love mom more than Jesus? Do you love dad more than Jesus? If you think it can't mean that, then you spend a lot of time and energy trying to figure out what it means. But that's what it means. Do you love mom more than Jesus? 
Would you be persecuted for your dad? What do we all say? You can talk about me, but don't talk about my mama. I mean, Jesus knows how it works. He's saying, do you feel that way about me? Do you treasure me like that? Are you willing to undergo persecution for my name's sake? In these verses, these three loves referring to our parents, our children, and our own lives. He's just saying, the things that you hold dearest cannot be superior to Christ. We must love Jesus supremely. On judgment day, your eternal destiny is determined by your love for Jesus. You and I, listen to these words, straight from what Jesus says, you and I will not be considered worthy of eternal life if we choose our parents, our children, or even our own lives over Jesus. In making this point, he refers to the cross and he says the necessity of his disciples to take up his cross. We just don't appreciate what he's doing here. He, we say, oh, that's my cross to bear. We throw around, we wear crosses, we got crosses, we got crosses everywhere, t-shirts with crosses, that's all great. But what Jesus was saying to try to make it a little more in our is, is unless you're willing to go to the electric chair for me. Like, what? The cross was a vivid Mental image of, of their reality. The cross to these early disciples were listening and they know the scene of the cross. And they know the cross is the, considered the most gruesome, most shameful, most painful way to punish a criminal. And it's not just the actual event of hanging on the cross, though that in itself is gruesome and painful. It is death by asphyxiation. Intentionally designed to be a slow, painful death where one can no longer hold the weight of their body up and they collapse, and their collapsing of the own weight on their lungs and on their body shuts it down in a slow, intentionally slow, painful death. It's not about the nails and the hands and the feet, that's just to hold them there. That's not what kills them. And that's not all it's limited to. This, the, the cross was all about shaming the individual being hung. And so they had to walk and be paraded through town in a humiliating fashion, bearing the weight of their own cross as they walked through the community of their peers to their jeering and to their mocking and to their abuse and to the spitting upon them. And, and everyone knew that man and that's his family. And so they brought shame on their family for generations to come and Jesus says unless you are willing to take up my cross you're not worthy of me yeah really wish I could interpret these some other way but the clear intention of it is Christ must be supreme Jesus is saying his disciples must find him worthy of suffering shame, 
pain, and yes, even physical death. There are people right now being killed for their faith in Christ in other parts of the world. There are people rotting in prison because they refused to turn their back on Jesus. That they treasured Jesus more than their freedoms and their comforts. And I'm hesitant to share Jesus because someone may not like me. So he's saying, are you willing to suffer shame, pain, and even physical death for his name's sake in order to be considered worthy of eternal life? It's not a merit system, but it's saying, is Christ that significant to you? Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Notice the verb tenses. Whoever fully embraces the world and their fleshly desires now. Whoever finds his life now will lose it future. Whoever fully embraces this world and their fleshly desires now will not find the eternal reward in the future, the life of the soul. However, whoever fully embraces Jesus now, though it will bring persecution and trials upon themselves, will in the future eternally enjoy life with Christ. So again, it's that now versus eternity. What you do now has eternal implications. On judgment day, when you stand before the Father, he says, if you did not find my son worthy, you are not worthy of eternal life. There is no gray. You either embrace him or not. And all of eternity hangs in the balance. Frank Gablin, in his commentary, says, the appeal is not gloom, but to discipleship. There is a strong paradox here. Those who lose their life, whether in actual martyrdom or disciplined self-denial, will find it in the age to come. Those who find it now by living for themselves and refusing to submit to the demands of the Christian discipleship lose it in the age to come. I think that was an amen. But think about it. Is, is the future real? I mean, do you believe it? Do you believe his promises of eternal life and, and life in him eternally? And he's bringing a kingdom and that your decision now matters. If you don't believe that, if you don't believe the eternal inheritance is real, if you don't believe the reward is real, if you don't believe all this then you're not going to do this. Is Jesus worth it to you? Do you find Jesus worth undergoing mockery and shame? Do you find Jesus worth losing your best friend? Do you find Jesus worth losing someone that you're dating? Do you find Jesus worth losing your reputation at the country club? 
do you find Jesus worth losing a promotion because you stood up for what's right? Is he worth it? That's what he's saying. Do you find Jesus worth being shunned by your family? Ouch. Your eternal life is found in how much you value Jesus now. The reward, Jesus' mission, his worth, and his reward, verse 40 through 42. Whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Notice the chain there. Whoever receives you, who've been sent with the gospel, receives Jesus who sent you. And whoever receives Jesus receives the Father who sent him. The Father sent Jesus on mission. Jesus sent his disciples on mission. You are the very representation of Jesus. We're the body of Christ. His body was here and he ascended to heaven and now you are his body on earth. You are the representation of Jesus. You have been sent the way he was sent. If you speak the gospel, if they receive you, they're receiving Jesus. If they're receiving Jesus, they're receiving God. If they receive God, they receive eternal life. Wow, that's significant. We must not let fear silence us. In this passage, he goes on to talk about prophets and righteous person and the little ones. And if you don't know what he's talking about, you can get confused. And it sounds like he's talking about three different people with three different rewards. And he's not. I agree with Frank Gablin who says all three terms refer to disciples at different stages and different prominence throughout the history of the scriptures. But what's clear is he's saying the little ones who are persecuted are the persecuted disciples. Little ones are persecuted disciples. But prophets speak the word of God. The righteous ones speak the word of God. And the persecuted ones for Jesus' sake are speaking the word of God. So he's not emphasizing differences. He's emphasizing similarity. He is saying whether it's this person, that person, or that person. The three times repeated here is reward, reward, reward. Receive, reward. Receive, reward. Receive, reward. The point is this. You represent Christ. And when you go out and speak the gospel of Jesus Christ, if someone receives you, they receive your message, they receive the teachings of Christ, they're receiving Jesus, they're receiving God, they receive the eternal rewards. What does it mean to receive then? Again, Frank Gablin says, the person who receives, receives Christ, his word, his ways, the gospel, and they express solidarity with the people of God and these little ones by receiving them for Jesus' sake. Over and over, he says, when you're persecuted for my name's sake, when you go out, you go out in my name. When they receive you, they're receiving you who have gone out in my name. They are receiving Jesus. That's amazing. That's amazing. We must not grasp this, apparently. I don't grasp this. That someone who receives me and my message of Jesus is eternally saved. And I'm going to let a little fear keep me silent. It's crazy.
crazy. When we think about rewards, sometimes it bothers us and we say, how can it be right to to, to share something for the reward or to receive something for the reward. And C.S. Lewis has some great teachings on how to think through this. And, and, and he talks about it only bothers us when we think of improper rewards. For example, it, it would be it just doesn't seem right for me to say, I'm going to be a good husband because at the end of being a good husband, I'm going to get a, a trophy. Or I'm going to be a good husband because someone said, I'll reward you with $1,000 if you'll be a good husband. It just, it, it seems like it kind of ruins the whole thing, doesn't it? But Lewis explains that's because proper reward is, is the actual full consummation of the activity itself. In other words, the proper reward for me being a good husband is a glorious marriage. And so the actual activity itself of being a loving husband is rewarded by the full consummation of that loving relationship being a wonderful, loving relationship. And so it's the proper reward. The the full consummation of the activity itself is the proper reward. And so if we apply this to scriptures, we say that fully embracing Christ... The reward of that is the full consummation of that, and that's what the eternal reward is. It's Jesus himself, fully unrestricted by sin, unhindered by our own failings. Full reward. Jesus in all of his fullness is the reward for receiving Jesus. Living according to the kingdom principles of sacrifice, the joy of sacrifice, the joy of laying my life down, the joy that undergirds the the willingness to take persecution, the reward of that is the fullness of joy in Christ. And so we, yes, it should be motivated by the reward, both to share Christ, knowing there is great reward in that, and also for receiving Christ, if you're here today considering Should I receive Christ, knowing the cost that comes? So when we consider all that Jesus is saying, he's calling for us to have a dividing loyalty as opposed to what we usually have, which is divided loyalties. Usually we have loyalty to this and that and the other, and we have divided loyalties. He's saying, no, you're going to have one loyalty, and that's me, and it is going to be a dividing loyalty Others will be divided away from you. He demands that we love him more than anyone or anything on earth. Our parents, our children, our own lives. Some have given their lives as martyrs. Gablin replies, he says, but those who die for him can look beyond that death to a true life which cannot be found by evading the disgrace and suffering of the cross. The life that we long for is only found through the pain and suffering. It cannot be found by evading it all. I think the most helpful way to think about it is is a quote from Gablin that said this. For us in our context, what does this mean for us? I I don't think, I could be wrong. I don't think most of us are going to face the life and death decision by God's grace. But here's what he says. 
to agree to follow Jesus is to sign away all rights to a quiet life of self-determination. Again, to agree to follow Jesus is to sign away all rights to a quiet life of self-determination. That's gone. You don't get to do that. Father, would you help us understand that to follow you is to sign away all rights to a quiet life of self-determination. May we find you so worth it, so valuable. May the promises of Scripture be so real. May the reward be so unimaginable. May we grasp the truths of the gospel of what you've done for us through Christ. May they be so valuable to us that we cherish Jesus, love Jesus supremely, and that we live for him, signing away all rights to a quiet life of self-determination. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.